When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. He now lives within himself, which is a dangerous place for him to be. But the reality of it is that he's not a strategic thinker and he's in a moment now, it's, it's perilous. Who knows, we may get to a point where the question is asked, what did the president know and when did his son-in-law tell him? Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who violates a law called the Presidential Records Act every time he deletes one of his incoherent tweets. Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So I hope you're ready for some more negative press kavifi, because today's show is all about Jared Kushner, a man whose every action raises the same question, possibly criminal or just criminally stupid. And let's not discount the argument for just stupid. I met Jared Kushner once. It was several years ago, well before the Trump campaign. He and Ivanka were guests at a swanky Upper East Side dinner party that my wife and I were also invited to. It was one of those boisterous, gossipy evenings, and everyone had a lot to say, including Ivanka, who I liked. The one exception was Jared Kushner, the publisher of what had been the city's best gossip digest ever, the New York Observer. Jared just kind of sat there, very polite, very handsome, very well-dressed, excellent manners, but it was basically impossible to engage him in conversation. I couldn't, and I don't think anybody else at the dinner could either. He didn't seem shy exactly. He just didn't have anything to say about anything. Now, of course, let's be fair. You can't judge someone from just one encounter like that. It could have been just a bad day for him. We all have them. Maybe he lost another tenant on Fifth Avenue. Maybe his dad had a bad meeting with his parole officer. Maybe he just failed the Turing test. But ever since then, my assumption has been that Jared's a slightly dim bulb, not a Machiavellian manipulator. Increasingly, the evidence suggests that this is a false dichotomy. Jared's devious and stupid. In fact, you'd have to be both devious and stupid not to disclose meetings with the Russian ambassador on your security clearance forms. It's deceitful to conceal it, but just foolish to think no one's going to find out. You'd have to be both devious and stupid to ask Mr. Kislyak, the Russian ambassador, to let you use his secure back-channel communications to talk to the Kremlin. It's sneaky to be talking to Russian spymasters out of the earshot of U.S. intelligence but it's just moronic to put yourself at such massive risk of blackmail and public exposure, even if you really only wanted to talk about Syria. And you'd have to be both devious and stupid to tell your father-in-law 
to fire James Comey as head of the FBI. It's conniving to try to kill an investigation of yourself that way, but just shit for brains to think people would applaud the decision. But there's someone who knows Jared Kushner's world far better than I do. He's Tim O'Brien of Bloomberg View. And I'll be back to speak to him about the question of the hour, devious or stupid, right after this message. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days In, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. I'd like to welcome Tim O'Brien back to the show. Listeners know that he is a Trump biographer. His biography is called Trump Nation, and he is the survivor of a ridiculous libel suit that Donald Trump brought against him and that Tim won. He is also the executive editor of Bloomberg View. Tim, welcome back. It's good to be here, Jacob. Thank you. I want to talk about Jared Kushner. Part of the difficulty when there's all this different stuff breaking day by day, the back channel communications, different meetings with different rushes, is getting a sense of perspective about what's important and what's really going on here. So big picture, why do we think the feds are investigating Jared Kushner if they are investigating Jared Kushner? Well, at a minimum, they simply want to know why he chose to meet with Sergei Kisilyak on several occasions during the transition period, you know, in between uh, when Trump got elected on November 8th and when he got inaugurated on January 20th. And I think that's part and parcel of a broader inquiry into the Trump White House and the Trump campaign's uh, connections to the Kremlin, or lack thereof, or more than we know about. I think that's all what's being examined now. And Jared Kushner becomes an interesting figure in all of this, because in the person of Jared Kushner, you have this investigation walking right into the Oval Office now. And I also think taking on a financial dimension that it didn't have prior to now. Uh, Up until now, most of the way the FBI uh, probe has been described is looking at collusion between the Trump campaign and Russian hackers to tilt the campaign away from Hillary Clinton and into Donald Trump's lap. I think with Jared Kushner, the specter that gets raised over the White House now is, was this White House proffering policy changes, particularly things like lifting sanctions, economic sanctions on Russia and sanctions on Russian banks in exchange possibly for loans to Jared Kushner. I mean, and this goes to the the issue about the 666 Fifth Avenue building, which I want to talk about in a second. But, but again, just to sort of sort this out a little more, we're looking at three possible dubious motivations here. One would be the Kushner family's real estate interests, their financial interests. A second one 
would be Trump campaign's possible collusion with Russian hacking of the election of the DNC, which is the second one. A third one is the Trump administration before it's in office conducting foreign policy in a way that's so unorthodox, it may break rules. Right. That's the whole back channel issue. I'm still a little curious about the way that the back channel narrative emerged because it came on the heels of revelations, uh, I think initially in Reuters, as a matter of fact, where it was confirmed that the substance of Jared Kushner's conversations with Sergei Kisilyak, who's also a, a well-known spy recruiter in the U.S., even though he has that nice title of Russian ambassador to the U.S., involved talking about potential financing. And I think within hours of that news coming out, this other information emerged that, oh, well, actually what they were talking about were back-channel communications and, and trying to find a way to talk about Syria. And then that was last Friday by Monday morning, a anonymous source told Fox News that, in fact, there were no back-channel discussions. So that whole back-channel thing is murky um, to me. And when you say about the source, I mean, the source, the American sources could have been Kushner or Flynn, Kushner unlikely, or that they were being spied on in some way and our intelligence intercepted it, or there could be a Russian source. I can't think of anyone else, right? Who else would have known about it? For the, for the Fox story? The back channel. No, the, the, the back About cha- the back channel. Right. It had to be people who were party to the conversation, presumably, either through surveillance or participation. Only one of those two scenarios, right? And presumably that involved at least Michael Flynn, Jared Kushner, and Kisilyak uh, at a minimum. But the larger issue that gets raised in those conversations is you have very naive people, and especially in Jared Kushner's case, inexperienced people playing spy games in between an election victory and taking the oath of office. And they had no formal federal powers yet, and they were navigating waters they had never been in before, and they were putting the country's national security at risk in the process. Honestly, I can't come up with a reason for for Jared doing that that makes sense. Because even if you sort of accept his story that they want to talk about Syria and they thought they were being spied on by the Obama people. I mean, first of all, having a paranoid conspiracy view of the world is not an excuse for putting security at risk, as you say. But couldn't they wait five weeks to talk about Syria or get some sort of clearance for the meeting? I mean, you can't be – if you're not committing some sort of betrayal, it's criminal stupidity to think you could use Russian communications to talk secretly with the Russians because among and, other and things – propose yeah. establishing those communications on Russian soil in a Russian embassy in Washington, D.C., which it's is like also, wearing a button that says, please blackmail me. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, in moments like these two, when things get confusing in politics and business, it's often kind of useful to think about, well, what's the simplest explanation? And the one that has occurred to me repeatedly throughout all of this is, is the financial explanation. Yeah. So, well, let's talk about that. And, and to go into that a little bit, let's talk about 
666 Fifth Avenue, which which you and Bloomberg have done just a ton of amazing reporting on. I mean, I think Bloomberg's basically credited with the falling apart of this Chinese deal, this Chinese bank, Anbang, which was going to bail out the Kushners by investing in this building. And do you think it's 665 Fifth Avenue that is behind this other meeting with Sergei Gorkov, the head of the Russian bank that was set up by Kislyak? I personally think it should be something that the congressional investigators and the Justice Department and the FBI should all take a close look at. And here's why. Jared Kushner's father goes to jail in, in the early noughts as a result of a very seedy series of familial betrayals. And Jared gets control of the family real estate portfolio. He promptly liquidates a big portion of these very lucrative but boring garden apartments in New Jersey that the family owns and uses that cash to go shopping in Manhattan for big, splashy, sexy, high-profile buildings. And he ends up landing on 666 Fifth Avenue. And in 2007, he pays about $1.8 billion for the building using his own money as well as, as a huge chunk of, of, of debt to, so, so to fund it. Height of the market, young pup Jared wants to play at the big boys table, does this colossal investment. I mean, was that the biggest transaction in Midtown real estate? I, I, I think it was the biggest at the time. It was one of the biggest purchase prices for a single office building in Manhattan. It was quite a bit more than other bidders were willing to pay. And of course, as you note, Jacob, it was a year before you know, the financial collapse of 2008 when real, real estate values plummeted. And in short order, after buying this building, his uh, occupancy rates plummeted, which meant the owner was getting less cash from tenants. And an owner with less cash, it's harder for the owner to pay back his debts, just like anyone who owns a home and has a mortgage. And he needed to get bailed out by a group of investors who essentially came in and said, okay, we'll give you a 10-year loan. And you get this sorted out, but there's going to be a big payment facing you 10 years from now in 2017 or 2018. And you figure it out between now and then. Now, of course, back then, uh, I don't think he was married yet to Ivanka Trump. And certainly he had no idea that his father-in-law or his future father-in-law was also going to become the president. However, Jared began a series of, of meetings with foreign financiers to refinance 666, which was in danger of, of going into uh, bankruptcy proceedings and would have blown this huge hole in the side of the Kushner family portfolio. In fact, he began the discussions after Trump looked like he was going to be the uh, apparent Republican nominee back in the summer of 2016. And he first met with An Bang, A-N-B-A-N-G, which is a major Chinese insurance company with very ch close ties to the Chinese government. And those uh, discussions, I think, were first reported by the New York Times, and then my colleagues at Bloomberg News followed up on those. And they essentially entailed this Chinese insurer paying, I think, around $2.5 billion for the building, which would have bailed the Kushners out of their debts. It would have allowed them to cash out with about 400 or $500 million and left them with a nice 20% equity stake in the building. And those had went almost all the way up to completion before we reported on it here. And I think that led to that deal getting blown up. And that's as soon as, as, soon as Donald Trump is elected, 
this is just the most obvious conflict of interest that that his son-in-law and the guy who's his advisor on international affairs is trying to get a huge sum of money from foreign, Chinese. foreign lenders, whoever they are. Yeah, starting yeah. With, with the Chinese. And he takes the position, I mean, not only does he not immediately recuse himself from the business, but they just take the position that they're not going to disclose anything and don't care about any possible conflict. And I think the other thing with Kushner and the Russians is by late fall and December of last year, he still hadn't sealed a financing deal on 666-5th with the Chinese. And we do know that Kisil Yak introduced Kushner in December to the head of one of Russia's biggest banks, VEB, or Vernesh Economic Bank. And that bank is very close to the Kremlin. Dmitry Medvedev sits on that bank's board, the CEO of the bank. Um, Sergei Gorkov uh, was trained uh, at an espionage school in Moscow. There's no, there's, no meaningful dis- there's no meaningful distinction between that bank and the government. Well, right? I, think, I think when you're talking about major Russian banks, in major Chinese banks, you're also talking about substantial government influence and sometimes outright control. And they're subject to U.S. sanctions. The sanctions that were passed in 2014 in response to Syria apply to not all banks, but in particular to VEB, right? C- correct. VEB was sanctioned, as was Russia itself because of Putin's incursions into Crimea and and the Ukraine. So Sergei Gorkov, and I should say, Tim, I mean, you've been sounding the alarm about this meeting that happened with Jared Kushner and and Gorkov for months saying, you know, investigators better be looking at this. The Senate Intelligence Committee better better be looking at this. And, And finally, I think people have come around to recognizing the importance of that. But let's talk about that that meeting. And now you can certainly imagine what Sergei Gorkov, the CEO of this a VEB Russian bank would have wanted from Jared Kushner. They want the sanctions lifted. Um, they may want other things too. What do you they think? They want the sanctions lifted, yeah. and possibly they also want someone who's the president's son in law. They didn't know yet what kind of portfolio he was going to have in the White House, but everyone assumed that he was going to have a, a significant White House role. That it would also give them leverage over someone who was going to be sitting next to the president every day. Yeah, it's simple. And But what about Jared's side? Do you think he was possibly looking to VEB for his bailout, for the big payment, balloon payment um, that you mentioned on 665th Avenue that he had coming due? I mean, would it have been possible to get that money from a sanctioned Russian bank? I I don't know. How that would have ultimately been arranged, I don't think in this day and age, it's very hard to move huge sums of money into different banks and, you know, through different conduits to get around sanctions. We know it happened all over the place with sanctions on Iraq and Iran at different points. Um, so I don't, I, the mechanics of that don't seem to me to be daunting, but the legal risk is huge. And the reputational risk is huge. And, and again, all of this comes back to me that I think we're in a moment right now, historically, and in the country where these issues to me aren't even partisan or ideological. They're about good government and national security and having clear, transparent processes in place so we know how people with power are exercising that power. And there's just been this flagrant thumbing of the nose by the Trump administration at all of those norms. And ironically, I think their cavalier attitude about all of this stuff 
is now going to haunt them because of where this investigation is headed. They could make a you know very innocent argument that that Jared Kushner was a young naif in the woods and uh, was just doing stuff for business and doing stuff for politics and really didn't see the two mingling. But I think law enforcement authorities are going to really take a cold, hard look at that. Yeah, that we put Bambi in charge of national security doesn't play that well in court. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and a Bambi with Bambi with Tude, right? He, he, <laughs> he really, I think, thinks that he uh, can solve almost any problem put at, at, at his feet. As we know, the president early on after getting elected said he intended for Jared to solve uh, the entire Middle East peace problem. Uh, he gave him the task of overhauling the entire federal government and streamlining it. Those on their own are both tasks that have thwarted people with vastly more experience and know-how than Jared Kushner. But I think the president is in, has sort of um, moved Jared's self-esteem to another plane. And when people get arrogant, I think they can also be injudicious. And and that's all in play right now for them. So what do we know about this Gorkov Kushner meeting. This was a Trump Tower, right? And who else was there? And what do what do people say was discussed? No, well, so uh, apparently the meeting was brokered by Kishilyak himself. So the interesting question then is, what occurred? What was the conversation between Kushner and Kishilyak in their meeting? that led the Russian ambassador then to say, oh, come and meet this powerful Russian banker. I'll, I'll set that up too. So there's two conversations that we'd want to know about. I don't know what the substance of either of those conversations were, but as I mentioned earlier, Reuters reported about a week ago that in the meeting with Gorkov and Kushner, the issue of, of financing was discussed. And I can't imagine from the Russian bank side of this that they were there simply because they wanted to just meet Jared Kushner because he's a fine young man. They certainly wanted something out of that meeting, and one would suspect a lifting of sanctions might have been part of that. So where do you, where do you think this goes? I mean, we don't know. Obviously, this, this investigation is, is confidential. Stuff is, is trickling out. But do you think Jared could be a target? And do you think he's a target because of espionage or because of corruption? I don't know that he's formally a target. He's certainly been asked to provide documentation to the FBI and to congressional investigators. One can assume that that means that he has information that's germane to the things they're looking at, which now I think involves you know, possible obstruction of justice, collusion uh, with the Russian government, and possibly financial conflicts of interest. So, well, Tim, on the topic of obstruction of justice, I mean, according to all these reports, Jared Kushner was the one advising Trump to fire James Comey, the guy who is investigating him for whatever. Right. And, and Trump decided to follow Jared's advice because of Jared's long track record as a, as a legal scholar and a law <laughs> enforcement expert. Um, that one really reflects poorly on both Kushner and the president because apparently from the reporting around this, I think by Maggie Haberman and others at the New York Times, Don McGahn, the White House counsel, was against 
firing Comey, but Trump ignored him. And I think that speaks to a couple things, that Trump historically has always defaulted to family. I've, I've said in the past that before Steve Bannon or Rex Tillerson or General Mattis or anyone else in that administration, Jared and Ivanka will always come first. And at the end of the day, Trump will always genuflect before them for advice. Although he ultimately only listens to his own advice. Uh, he, he's not someone who, who builds strong teams and listens to strong people around him. But in the Comey firing, he blew off the advice he got from a trained lawyer in favor of his son-in-law, who is completely lacking in experience. And I think they got a horrible result from, from that. They, it blew back on them in an ugly way. It resulted in Bob Mueller being appointed as a special counsel. And, and Mueller is, is going to hang over them like a, a specter for probably the entire Trump administration. And that it was a bad decision. Trump listened to the wrong person and they got a bad result. And as a result, they've had to lawyer up personally, which is what happens in this kind of investigation, right? They all have personal lawyers now. That's right. And the president now has uh, retained Mark Kasowitz as his outside counsel. Again, I think this reflects Trump's deep lack of strategic thinking. Uh, I have some experience with Mark Kasowitz. He represented Trump when Trump sued me for libel. Oh, Jesus. And at the time, Kasowitz had no experience in libel law. And I was fortunate to have great lawyers, uh, David McCraw of the New York Times, and then Mary Jo White and Andrew Levine of Debevoise and Plimpton. And they all just outlawed Kasowitz. We really you know, strip the bark off them like an old tree in court. And now you fast forward to where we are now, and Trump's in the middle of congressional probes, a Justice Department probe, an FBI investigation, and he brings in Mark Kasowitz, who has absolutely no experience defending against these kinds of inquiries as his as his chief legal advisor. And yes, they have a history together. You could say that it's smart for the president to have someone he trusts. But the real thing the president needs right now is great legal advice and someone who's a shrewd um, maneuverer in moments like this. And I don't think either of those things apply to, uh, to Mark Kasowitz in this instance. At some point, the uh, buddies from Queens you trust are not the solution to every problem. Correct. Especially when you're no longer in Queens, when, you, when you're in the White House. I think all of the circumstances are vastly different. Dorothy, we're no longer in Queens. <laughs> That's right. I've been speaking to Tim O'Brien of Bloomberg View. He's the author of Trump Nation. Tim, thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me, Jacob. And that's it for our show today. Hey, are you following Trumpcast on Twitter? You can find us there and keep up with all the latest from the Trumpcast team. And that includes audio clips you might want to share with your friends from the show. For example, you can catch our voice of Donald Trump, John D. Domenico, exploring the possible pronunciations of Kafifi. That's how I do it. Right there on our feed at Real Trumpcast. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. We'll be back with more before the week is over. I'm Jacob Weisberg.